Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. Each year here at Beeson Divinity School, we sponsor an endowed lectureship. We call it the Reformation Heritage Lectures on some aspect of the Protestant Reformation, and it always takes place during Reformation Week. Well, today we're reaching back to 1999, and we're going to listen to a lecture given by the late Heiko A. Obermann. Heiko Obermann was one of the truly outstanding historians of the 20th and early 21st century, and he gave this lecture uh, just a couple of years before he passed away called Luther, Kepler, and the Chicken Bone. I introduce him right before he speaks, so let's go to Hodges Chapel and listen to Heiko Obermann, Reformation Week, 1999, Luther, Kepler, and the Chicken Bone. I have the great honor to present to you our distinguished lecturer today, Professor Heiko Augustinus Obermann. A native of the Netherlands, Professor Obermann has held professorships at Harvard Divinity School, at the University of Tübingen in Germany, and for several years now at the University of Arizona in Tucson. He himself was trained in history at the University of Utrecht in his own native Netherlands and at Oxford University. It's seldom you can say that one individual has had such a catalytic influence on a single discipline as Professor Obermann. He's the author of 30 books, about which I will mention only two. One, The Harvest of Medieval Theology a book which in itself set out a new trajectory of Reformation scholarship, which continues to this very day, redirecting an entire field of study. And more recently, his book on Luther, Man Between God and the Devil, which I think is the very best book on Martin Luther in the last 50 years. Many other books and writings he writes, whether it's about witchcraft or predestination, whether about ecumenism or the Copernican Revolution, he writes with verve and sensitivity of a master scholar who is also at once a master teacher. I had the distinct privilege of working with him as a teaching fellow some years ago when I myself was a student at Harvard University, and it was one of the great influences and blessings on my life. In addition to being a marvelous scholar, he also is a committed preacher and person of the Church, ordained to the ministry in the Dutch Reformed tradition, and a Protestant observer at the Second Vatican Council in the 1960s. And we hear him with gratitude and expectation. I asked how long I would have for my lecture this morning and said, as long as you need, so I hope you packed a good hearty luncheon. My lecture has uh, three parts, uh, and the, the first part has the heading, Luther, a heritage larger than its impact. My goal this morning is ambitious, to reach well beyond what is received from Luther, to reach beyond books about Luther to Luther's legacy itself, though I shall concentrate on Luther and the Devil, this is not a retake of my book. 
Luther man between God and the devil. Rather building on some of its surprising findings, I venture a fresh turn and return to Luther. My goal is not the whole Luther, but the essential Luther. The essential Luther needed most for the renewal of Christianity today. There is a fourth century proverb circulating among the Neoplatonists, let's say the systematic theologians of those days, and very critical bon mot directed against Xenophon uh, and a whole series of other uh, famous Greek historians. And that word sounds very simple, but has it in it. People forget whole centuries, they remember moments. In Greek it says they forget whole epochs, they remember episodes. It is very interesting, revealing for the Western tradition that this same proverb re-emerged ten centuries later in the Middle Ages, now assigned to the uh, great Jewish philosopher Maimonides, who died in 1204. And if you listen carefully, the whole proverb has now been put topsy-turvy, upside down. It says, wise people forget whole centuries and remember moments. And it is in this tradition that I dare in a lecture for one morning to try to achieve that wisdom that in such a limited time I can present to you with the vivacity as if you have been present there yourself, episodes of the past with a voice that penetrates your heart and mind today. A third preliminary comment deals with the story that I bet you have never heard of. It is the story of Kepler and the chicken bone. I don't know how many of you have heard of Johannes Kepler, the great German astrophysicist, the greatest advance in the knowledge of space between Copernicus and Newton, that are really the three great scientists that brought modern enlightened concept of the space around the world. This Johannes Kepler, he died in 1630, you don't have to note all those details, but just to place him in the century, was famous in his day for advancing the most daring proof, actually he was the one that proved the hypothesis of Copernicus, till his time the good scholars were critical of Copernicus, because Copernicus had not brought any proof. He did. In times of intense flu epidemics and of the plague, when it hit Wein on Stein where he was living, he would put a chicken bone under his pillow. Kepler and the chicken bone. It alerts us to the fact how <laughs> There is an advance and breakthrough on one level, and on other levels we are rooted in the past. We bring that past with us. In the case of Kepler, and then we will pass on, uh, it is a help for you to know that his mother, he's dedicated the last year of his life to defend his mother who had been condemned to the stake for witchcraft. 
So probably that medicine, that medicine help of the chicken bone under the pillow, he got uh, from at his mother's feet. Now, that is important for us, for me this morning, when I bring you what I claim to be a Luther that is ahead of our times, far more than just a modern Luther, that I am myself living with a number of chicken bones under my pillow. I like to present, I love always these introductions, and they could go on endlessly, because it shows what you have achieved, and they did not even mention all my honorary doctorates and all these other paraphernalia. But there's the chicken bone under my pillow. That is the way you should always listen to every speaker, to every lecture that comes with the claims of knowledge, that it is always in terra mixta. Now, in Luther's case, and I will try to come to the conclusion of my introduction, but it is very important for you when you want to sit at Luther's feet. In Luther's case, he was aware of that chicken bone. That I find so amazing. The scary thing about me is that in 10, 20, 30 years, when they read my books at all, they will say, how is it possible that he missed out on? And then dot, dot, dot. I have no idea what my chicken bone is. But in Luther's case, the last note that was found on his bed when he died, when he had died, was a little note, probably known to you from the first statement. It says, we are beggars. That is true. But that is introduced, that little note, with a very important other observation. If we have not guided, pastored the Christian churches with the apostles for a hundred years, we will not be able to fathom the riches of Scripture. That means that there are in Scripture dimensions, that there is so much more to be said about God than we can fathom in even the best of theology. There's even more to be said than I can say. Now, that's quite a claim. And behind that stands, and I just want to touch on it because that deserves a lecture in itself, that is the theology of the cross. In 1518, in the Heidelberg Disputation, Luther advanced the thesis of the theology of the cross that stands against the theology of glory. And what does that mean? That the theology of glory constructs a God on the basis of some data from Scripture and on data from our experience, and they will fill out who God is, the essence of God. And the theology of the cross knows that we are given a God who has revealed himself and said, this is what you need to know about me. And the whole history of theology is the pursuit, looking back, is the pursuit of a theology of glory that always wants to more, know more how God is, his attributes, from a philosophical assumption that God must be higher than anything we can achieve, can, can imagine. And so you start to construct a God, there he is. And we will encounter him again today in the lecture, and therefore it was so important to bring in these few comments on we are beggars. Why are we beggars? Not only because we are limited in our understanding and limited in our experience. I should have been stuttering about Scripture unless I have guided the churches for a hundred years with the apostles. But also because God says, this is what you need. That is the Deus Revelatus, the God who reveals himself in Jesus Christ. He does not reveal his being, all his mysteries, there's a lot to come. The new heaven and the new earth, the feast that we expect at the end of time, 
partly a feast is that we will know the mysteries of God. We will be amazed. But this is what we have now in the scriptures, in the sacraments, in the preaching. This is what we need now in this world. The final comment, and then I start to count. The introduction never is allowed to count against the time that the speaker has. One more point. The good historian is bilingual. That doesn't mean that he's good in Dutch and English or in Latin and Greek. But bilingual, that he knows the language of the period he studies. And for our purposes this morning, that is the later Middle Ages, early modern times, let's say the 14th, 15th, 16th century, and that he knows the language of his own time, that he is able to translate the experience of the past into a language of today. Now, I have been brought up with the ideal that what you find in the past, you translate so that people can listen to it, understand it today. That is what makes history relevant. But today I want to go the risky path of not only going from the past to the present, but I also want to take you and I want to see what we discover there. That will be my second part, and then we go track back out of the past to the present, and that will be my third part. So, to conclude my introduction, the good historian is bilingual. He will be able, when he tracks into the past, to leave modern assumptions behind. It's very difficult. Think of uh, Kepler's chicken bone. This time it works the other way around. The chicken bone is now, if you can make with me this quick bouleversement, uh, this quick change, the chicken bone is now the understanding that the Earth is just a planet around the Sun. When you go to the past, the chicken bone is exactly the opposite of what you have under your pillow. It does not work to make Luther the first modern man, as so many Luther scholars do. They present and they make him attractive by showing that he's the first modern, as if that is a very high praise. Luther is not even, and then I must conclude, but I quickly can get it in on your time and not on mine. Luther is not even the first Protestant. As I see it, and Calvin is much more entitled to be called the first Protestant. Luther is not the first Protestant. Protestants have chosen the side of Karlstadt in their understanding of baptism. There's no understanding that with the water of the Jordan, the devil is exorcised. Have you seen all these Protestant ministers that tip a little bit of water and then quickly have and quickly take the water away? Um, Protestants stand with Erasmus on the issue of, of free will. They are not celebrating daily confession, which was so essential for Luther that the word of absolution is spoken to you from the outside so that it is not dependent on your pious emotions, but that it is said to you in the name of God, wherever you are, and whatever you feel at that moment. And when we celebrate the Eucharist, we do not hold that there Christ himself is present, the real present. No, Luther is not the first Protestant, but he's not the first modern man either. We have to know that and to realize that when I now take you on the track to the 16th century, my second part. And there are three surprising discoveries. Surprising for me, because I was already a well-established Luther scholar, I had already read, written many articles on Luther, 
till I made these discoveries. In the first place, Luther never refers to himself as reformer, nor to the movement that issued from him as the Reformation. That takes a long time to dawn upon you when your whole library is full with books on the Reformation and Luther the Reformer and when the Reformation was introduced in Brandenburg or in Württemberg or in Heidelberg or all these books, they make you not even ask the question, you always fill in the lines. It is parallel to that other discovery, not unimportant for our lecture this morning, that I always demythologized the devil. When Luther speaks about the devil, said that means he wants to indicate how powerful sin is over us. I did not even think about it automatically. For me, Luther was the first modern man, he was the reformer, and of course he doesn't believe in the devil. And it takes a long time before you allow the text to speak to you, because our own reading eyes are so shouting so loud, they overshout always the text. If I would, if I would eliminate, now Luther's works in the critical edition of his main works, not even the letters and his biblical commentaries, his main works, it is about 102 volumes, large volumes of the Weimar Ausgabe. If I would throw out those pages on which Luther mentions the devil more than five times. I'm perhaps left with two volumes, five times per page. So, so often, and I have been reading Luther for years, intensively, and I did not, because I knew that that could not be there. Luther never refers to himself as reformer. Is that a matter of humility? No, that is not a vice you can accuse Luther of very easily. Uh, he does not hesitate to call himself a prophet or an evangelist or even the apostle. Whereas in the whole Middle Ages, apostolus, the apostle is always St. Paul, like philosophers is always Aristotle. He doesn't hesitate to call himself apostolus. So it is not humility. But it is inconceivable for him because the reformator, the reformer, that is Jesus Christ. And the reformation is the movement that he brings when he returns, his second coming, and when he wipes away all the tears, that is reformation. Eradicating evil, that is reformation. And when he makes everything new, that is the reformation movement. So it would be inconceivable for Luther to call himself Reformator. As a matter of fact, that movement that started in Wittenberg, that are green branches on the church, on the tree of the church, and they are for the devil very smelly. The devil has a fine nose and he smells where these green branches are being sprouting. And he attacks them immediately. So the time we live in now is the time of the Counter-Reformation. And the Counter-Reformation is not, it was before the Jesuits and the Council of Trent, is not a Roman Catholic affair, but that is the first ecumenical movement. The Counter-Reformation, that resistance against the green branches that are sprouted. Only at the end of that you get the Reformation. It's a complete reversal from when you go to whatever university, 
in this country or abroad, and you would uh, go to a uh, course in the history of Western civilization, you would get the Middle Ages, Renaissance, Reformation, Counter-Reformation. But what an inversion of the sense of time to have the Counter-Reformation preceding the Reformation and to have the Reformation as your expectation in the future, the new heaven and the new earth. Second surprising discovery, Luther's real and not medieval belief in the devil. Real but not medieval. Luther was uh, trained for the for his ordination for the priesthood with a textbook, a commentary on the Mass, on the canon of the Mass, written by Gabriel Biel, who died in 1489, so a late 15th century theologian, who wrote a textbook that was used by priests to be ordained, uh, particularly in Germany and the large parts of France and in England. And there, we have an extensive part on the devil where Gabriel Biel says, I can be brief and then follow 69 large folios. The German professors continue to be the same. They can never put things in a very brief, concise manner. That is the problem with the German language, I believe. Um, but there he has an extensive, the point of this long disquisition on the devil is said, at the end he says, it is ridiculous to believe that the devil can become God. And therefore, that is the end of the, therefore it is nonsense to take the devil seriously. And Luther, reading this, already on his way to the Reformation, makes the comment, the real point is that it is ridiculous to believe that the devil can become man. That is in the superstition, in medieval superstition about the devil that makes the devil become man. It may give him a hoof and uh, may give him all kind of... And Luther says that is now exactly what makes the devil so furious. That is the mystery of the incarnation. Only God can come, become man. And the devil would like to become man. And he has his vic victory and his satisfaction where people believe that he can do it. But Luther is very medieval in the sense that he will deal with the devil in all kind of life contexts where, where we don't speak about the devil anymore. Perhaps the prairie preachers that I watch on TV from the Faith Network that sell the devil. They make a lot of money out of the devil because they make the devil scary. Luther never makes the devil scary. The devil is scary. And it doesn't help you to pay on a certain bank account uh, so much dollar to be protected against them. As a matter of fact, when I see this faith network, I realize that whereas Luther attacked the late medieval indulgence preachers, these indulgence preachers only sold access to earth, to the heaven. Whereas these, these uh, prairie preachers also promised me the riches of this earth. So they really outdo the later Middle Ages significantly. But when you talk about the impact of Luther, then you should not mention this particular form of religiosity at all. I want to tell, share with you an anecdote that you will not find in Luther scholarship. Because it is too embarrassing for those Luther scholars 
that they want to make the point that Luther is the first modern man. As a matter of fact, it is not an anecdote at all. The word anecdote we historians use when we are too embarrassed by particular events in the past. Luther is reports about 10 years later, so 10 years ago, and by my reconstruction, it is the winter of the year 1514, 1515. Ten years ago, I was writing my Psalms commentary uh, for the lectures that I was giving in Wittenberg. I was given special permission not to attend the first hours of the day, the first morning prayer, so that I could write on in the night. And there I was sitting in the refectorium, that means the eating, dining hall of the monastery. It is beautifully reconstructed. You can now go and visit it again in Germany. And there I was sitting in the refectorium and was writing for the next morning with enormous speed. By still that manuscript that has been preserved and modern handwriting specialists tell you that you can see what an enormous intelligence is at work because the uh, uh, very profound thoughts are obviously written there with great speed. These interpreters don't know the life of a young professor who has to give a course for the first time and never knows whether he has sufficient material um, and therefore Luther is writing like crazy. And he's sitting there close to the uh, uh, heater <coughs> Wood is piled up, the Camin. <coughs> and while he is writing, he suddenly hears that there is movement there. The blocks of wood that are being half burned suddenly tumble over. That he can understand. That must be the fire. But the wood piled up behind the Camin also starts to make noise. And then he knows that it is the devil. The devil who wants to break his concentration in presenting the word of God for his students the next morning. And Luther closes the manuscript, goes up the steps to his little cell, and says, writes it down, and I could fall asleep immediately knowing that I was in the shadow of the Most High, the allusion to the Psalm. Now, this is now Middle Ages and Reformation at the same time. Here in this experience, day of the devil, and that you can close your books and go up, that you know that you're in the shadow, of, that is now the doctrine of justification by faith. The sense that it must have been the devil with the noise, we modern people would have said, rats. If Luther had thought it were rats, just three years before in Wittenberg, there was the first medical thesis developed that said that the rats are the carriers of the black death, of the plague. So if Luther had thought it were the rats, he would have been scared. No, it was the devil. There he was under the protection of God. We talk a lot about simul justus et peccato, that it is this discovery that we are at once saint and sinner. But here you have another simul of the Middle Ages and Reformation, all in the same, what we call anecdote, what Luther tells to his students. Ten years ago, 
I would like you to know you are now used to that the Reformation has brought, what it meant for me and how I experienced it for the first time. The devil is very real. The third discovery, Luther's apocalyptic view of the present. Luther assumes with the whole of the Middle Ages that there are three advents of Christ. The first advent of Christ is in gray, is in, in carne, is in the flesh. The second is in gratia, that is in justification, when he makes his abode in us, when he has reconquered us from the power of the devil after the exorcism of baptism. And the third one, that is the adventus in gloria, then he comes in glory. And we are living between these advents. We are protected by the advent of Christ in us to survive in a time where the devil is loosed. Revelation 20. We are now living in that time where the devil is loosed. And this is the apocalyptic vision where the good theologian is not just the one who is a good biblical exegete or who is a good historian, but he is a speculator. Now, we only know that in its negative sense of speculation, but the speculator is the one who can look at the times as in a mirror, speculum, and is attuned to the signs of the time. How late is it? How far along? When will he be there? How long, O oh Lord? That is the sense of Christian living. That is what is intended when I say that Luther is an apocalyptic Christian. And then you may know a lot about dispensations and premillennial and all that you can have. But how long that stands against a number of assumptions? One is, and I must mention it today to have tomorrow a bridge, the precariousness of sanctification. If we are living in the time that the devil is loosed and that he smells, he has an enormous nose. And the true Christian is a rara avis, is a rare bird. The true Christian is that who can survive the onslaught of the devil without almost drowning. All of us will all be almost drowning. If we are not supported by the sacraments and by the preaching of the word of God, if Christ was not living in us, you would not have a chance. See, that is the sense of joy of being a Christian. If, if it is all a matter of persuasion and, and you have this view and I'm okay and you're okay, if there is no threat, if there is no salvation, then there is not a jubilation either. But this jubilation, we are being saved, we are being salvaged. Saved is, has become too spiritual for me in the Christian vocabulary. We are salvaged, body and soul, just like we die with body and soul. That is not prepared, but that I must make that point. That heresy of the immortality of the soul has very widely spread in Christianity. The Fifth Lateran Council made it a dogma, so Roman Catholics have to believe it. You don't have to believe it, but you do! You die body and soul, and you are resurrected body and soul. 
and the continuity between the one and the other, that is the fidelity of God, you are in his hands. So it is the precariousness of sanctification that is very different from what we will hear tomorrow with Calvin. There is much more with Calvin, the confidence in progress. Luther lives in the end time, Calvin lives at the beginning of modern times. There's a sense of time and a sense of salvation, justification, sanctity. All these themes are being touched upon. But more generally, we are Calvinists, also those of us that are not Calvinists at all and are secular atheists. We believe in the progress. I've now been on a number of millennial panels, and I'm very much impressed by hearing how my colleagues from all different fields have the feeling, just give us time, there is no problem we can't solve. Just give us money, and there is no problem we can't solve. That is the dream of progress, which gives you a very different sense of time from the apocalyptic vision of the scriptures and of Luther. With this, I complete part two, the three surviving, this surprising discoveries. Luther is not a reformer, a real but not medieval belief in the devil, and the apocalyptic view of the present. Now I want to go in my concluding part. This is the first time that I look at my watch. And you always advise good speakers never to look at their watch because that makes the audience aware of time. Not even to mention time, that's already wrong. But this business this morning is so much a lecture on time and eternity that we can't avoid to be aware of the speculum that we have in our watches. The third part I've called Luther discovers Satan, and seemingly we are still in the past, but we are bilingual, we historians. And I'm now going to listen to Luther and see what treasures I can bring from the past to the present. And I do that by distinguishing four titles that Luther has given the devil. That's the way I will divide this chapter, four titles. The first title that Luther gave to the devil is Dr. Consolatorius. It's quite surprising. It is Dr. Comforter. The Comforter, that's the Holy Spirit. But Luther called to the devil in that medieval tradition where you honor a great thinker by giving him a name. Augustine is the Dr. Grazie, and Scotus is the Dr. Communis. And the devil you call, you honor now by calling Dr. Consolatorius, Dr. Comforter. What does he mean with that? This is now one of the few things that I had already discovered when I wrote my book, Luther Man Between God and the Devil. When the devil attacks you, do remember his very fine nose. He only attacks you because he has smelled Christ in you. When the devil attacks you, nilly-billy, he witnesses to the fact that you are a child of God. He is as the ass of billion. He is forced to be a prophet of God, though he doesn't want to do it. The best illustration that I can find, I only found recently, looking at the tympanum at Romanesque churches in France. If you look in the Romanesque churches, in Conques, in Aviron, or in Autun, in the Burgundy, you will see that on the tympanum that is in the middle is Christ. 
Christ the Judex, that is the last judgment. And to the right, he has the saints, and to the left, he has the sinners. To the right, there is hardly any action at all. There are three people sitting on stools without any movement or mobility, and under it, it is written the Sancti. And all the action is at the other side, at the left. It says that peccatures, but you don't need to need Latin to know that that are the sinners, because there in the corner <laughs> is the devil with all his teeth, and the devil's helpers that bring in men and women, and you can see how in the Romanesque painters were convinced that all sins are basically sexual, because the men are brought in by their penis, and the women are brought in with their breasts, and they are brought <laughs> and thrown in there. And all the tourists, all the Japanese stand there to take pictures at the left, because there is the action. <laughs> if Luther would have been the one who had been uh, assigning this piece of art and had given the directives, you know that would be exactly inverted. All the action would be to the right. All the diabolical devils' attacks would be with the Eustace. They would not sit that silently on their stools. He is not interested in the peccatories. He has them anyway. But that is where the action is. Do you see with this example of the tympanon of the Romanesque churches, what a revolution in Christian ethics. This simple view all summarized in the simple title, Doctor Consulatorius. The second title, quite surprising again. He calls the devil Magister Conscientiae, Master of the Conscience. It is a lower grade, it is not as high as a doctor, it is only a master. But the medieval master is a doctor. He is the doctor, the master of the conscience. How do I understand that from the whole of, yeah, I would say, though in my mouth the word liberal is more positive than in the mouth of many of you, but the whole tradition of liberal Luther interpretation makes quite a lot of the fact that Luther is the discoverer of the conscience. And here I stand, and hasn't he stood up in worms and stood up for the free conscience? No. My conscience, he says in Worms, is captivated in the word of God. That means in bondage. Luther does not believe in the free conscience. And certainly not that that free conscience is that little spot in me that is protected against the impact of original sin, and that is the one spot that always is directed to God. Do you notice this kind of needle compass that is always going north? This human dream that there is something in me that is untouched. There are modern uh, developments in, uh, for, among neuroscientists, and I want to particularly call your attention to William H. Calvin, who only has his last name in common with the great reformer, who wrote a cerebral code, the cerebral code, and now most recently, two months ago, Antonio Damasio the feeling of what happens, body and emotion in the making of consciousness, 
I'm following with suspense what neuroscientists are doing in unraveling what is consciousness and what is conscience uh, and reducing that to biological components uh, and uh, tracking exactly what happens with people who are losing their conscience and regaining it and all the stages in between are measured. Strangely enough, what Luther is saying about the conscience is far closer to these modern neuroscientists that seem so threatening because they seem to reduce us, though they do it in a very respectful way, particularly the two authors I mentioned to you, Calvin and Damasio, because they even use biblical imagery to understand what, what mysteries there are in us, in our conscience, that when it lasts long enough creates conscience. But that conscience is a product of education and experience. And that it is as much involved in the evil forces of history and in the evil stories we participate in ourselves. That is something that Luther discovered by very carefully listening to his parishioners and listening to his own heart. He, uh, perhaps so much more on, on this second title, he will use for his students to say, you will soon be dealing with parishioners. And I want you to know how much the devil is the magister conscientiae, because the devil comes at night. He always comes about two o'clock. That is so the time that I have to take my Alcott seltzer. Uh, he comes at two o'clock when you have not said your evening prayers and have not been absolved from your the sin that you have committed that day. He will come at two and say, you are mine. No, I'm a Christian. Do you know the Ten Commandments? Yes. Let's go through the Ten Commandments. And then the Christian never has to have to go to the Second Commandment. Already the First Commandment will convince his conscience. And his conscience will witness with the devil that the devil is right. Do you see where the conscience stands? Very different from that whole Western optimistic tradition. And the conscience will witness with the devil that you are his. And then, you Christian, you may appeal against the devil and your conscience. And may remind the devil that you were baptized into baptism that you were baptized before you ever knew the difference between good and evil. You were already placed in the hands of the Almighty. If that vision of baptism would be regained again, then Luther perhaps could be made into a first Protestant. As I see it, he is not a first Protestant at this point. The third title, the devil is princeps mundi, the lord of this world. So we have had already the Doctor Consolatorius, the Doctor Comforter, the Magister Conscientiae, that means the Master of the Conscience, and now we have the Princeps Mundi, the Lord of this world. That's not an image for Luther that you can use nicely in some kind of sermon or meditation. I bring you two quotes. It cannot be denied, Luther says in the Galatians commentary, one of the few books that he said that it should not burn at the end of his life. He said, my books you can burn, but not the Galatians commentary. It cannot be denied that the devil lives, no reigns in the whole world. 
It has taken me a long time to discover. If you make any notes of this lecture, then don't make notes of what I said, but this is now a precious Luther quote. It has taken me a long time to discover that it is an article of faith that the devil is the princeps mundi, the god of this age, Deus huius seculi. An article of faith, that means the 13th article. It has taken him a long time. So it is the middle and the older Luther that jibes with my findings. In his understanding of the omnipotence of God, because that is immediately what you have to ask yourself, is the devil, is the princeps mundi, is ruling this world, what then they om with the omnipotence of God. In his understanding of the omnipotence of God, Luther has gone in the Western tradition the furthest in the direction of dualism, of that kind of dualism that you can still sustain together with the omnipotence of God. What do we mean with dualism? That there are two powers. God's omnipotence, you have sung about yesterday in the Festa Burge, what is it, a mighty fortress of God. One word will stop him. That when God calls time, but till this time, the devil is the princeps mundi that stands so against all that theologia gloriae in which I have been trained, where you have an, uh, dogmatics, de deut uno atrino, about the triune God, and then you have a part on the existence of God, and then you have a part on the attributes of God. Have you read those horrible works? And one of the attributes of God is his omnipotence. And do you see how that is developed in speculation out of a concept of God? That is theologia gloriae, theology of glory. Luther says the omnipotence is the only Latin that I will use today. Omnipotentia dei sola fide creditur. The omnipotence of God is believed by faith alone. We hang in there against all the evidence. Sola fide, that is believed. And we trust that soon it will be over. He calls time. One little word will do it. That is so different an understanding of time and Christianity than what is shaping the religious moods in this country in all denominations. And I believe that it is a treasure that you bring with you when you have listened to Luther in the past and as a bilingual historian come now back to the present. And I believe that this vision of reality, it is the biblical vision, and it is an interpretation of reality that will protect you against the waves of unbelief and atheism that will follow because you can't make true in all your promises of conquering the world and winning it for Christ. You can't make it true in your own life because you are miserable sinners. You a little bit more than I, but that is another point. The fourth and last, or I, perhaps I should stop here. Do I still have time for a fourth point? That is not a Latin title, but a German one. I can't help it. He did not put it in Latin. Der Teufel ist ein sauer Geist. The devil is, and it's always the Germans translator, is a fierce power. No, he is a sour, dour, dour. Is that a word in English? Yeah, dour, a dour power. That opens up a whole other dimension of Luther. The devil is the god of depression. Sour. Akidia is the old term. 
Now, we think of depression of an illness, of a mental illness that you have to look after, otherwise it will lead to suicide. For Luther, it is the consequence of original sin. We have lost the joie de vivre, that joy of life that was Adam's. Adam not only lost immortality, but he lost that joie de vivre that we have to pep up and that we only get in glimpses. We need pills for it, Viagra or whatever you use in this part of the country. The devil, Luther says, you have to realize that depression is uh, so much in us that you can, you cannot avoid that it is hovering over your head. It is with all of us it makes you, and then he uses for his students exemplar, examples that my students immediately understand wherever I, I teach them about Luther. It may give you the sense that life is soulless. You don't want to get out of bed in the morning because there is nothing out there to motivate you. Something is dying in your soul that takes away the joy. You can't even accept love of others because you can't believe it. You can't love yourself. There is a chill in your heart. And then Luther says, get out of bed. Seek community. Very good is music. Biblical verses with music is powerful. And dancing. Dancing is excellent. And beer and wine. There are whole areas in this country where you can't say that I can't bring this kind of Luther to the Missouri Lutherans. <laughs> and he goes further. He has also the vision that the devil hates the joy that goes from dancing, that comes from beer and wine. The devil hates sex. That doesn't fit in our... We think that particularly when we are pious, we associate sex and the devil very closely. But there's another anecdote that is the devil. <laughs> there is another anecdote, again not an anecdote at all, because it is <laughs> very well documented. On December the 10th, 1525, Luther writes to his good friend Spalatine, George Spalatine, the go-between with the uh, elector and the head of the library and a very good friend of Luther. He's going to marry also a Katie, a Katharina. The letter of Luther was immediately felt to be so embarrassing that uh, it was not published in any of the Luther editions. Only the most modern edition has it. But of course, by that time, our mind has been set and we know already our Luther better. We don't have to read him anymore. There he writes to Spalatin, and that sentence is still in all the editions. Unfortunately, I can't attend your wedding, but I sent you a present. The, the water on the river Zale is rising so fast, I would not be able to be back for my lectures at the university. Now, how many professors really stick to this rule? In Stanford, we always said one-third of the professors uh, is like the strategic air force. One-third of the professors always in the air. <laughs> but I can't, I can't attend it because I have my lectures. The water is dry. 
But, and now comes the part that has been cut off. I've carefully calculated how many hours the courier will take to bring you this letter. And at the moment you receive this letter, take your Katie, go upstairs and sleep with her. Now, of course, he did not say sleep with her. This is our nonsensical embarrassing. He was far more graphic and far more joyful. And at that same moment, I will take my Kate and invite her upstairs and sleep with her. And at that moment, we know we will be united in love for Christ. Is he a first Protestant? <laughs> now I come to my conclusion. What does that mean, that sense of the end time? First of all, wasn't he wrong? Yeah, he was wrong. He expected that many of the students of his, of his disciples would still be alive when the Lord would return. St. Paul was wrong. Jesus of Nazareth was wrong. And I submit to you that all true Christians are wrong, dare to be wrong. Go out on this limb, you go out on the green limb, on the limb of faith. You live as if this is the end time, and I mean end, end time. And that will inform and shape your soul, your piety, your action. And that is my second and final point, action. What does that mean for Luther? Do you know that word of Luther, that even if I heard that knew that the Lord would come tomorrow, I would still plant my apple tree today. It can't be found in Luther. I've not found it anywhere. It is apocryphal. But it is so precisely, it is one of these apocryphal statements that could not be more genuine and authentic. That means that you are active till the very last. It is a Jewish word of Rabbi Yohanan ben Zakai, who said in the third century, if you are planting a sapling and you hear the Messiah has come, first plant a sapling and then go to the Messiah. If Luther had known that it was a Talmudic, a rabbinic statement, he probably would not have wanted to use it. And there is that we touch on one of the darkest chapters in Luther's life and thought the anti-Semitism. But that anti-Semitism in the first place was not a chicken bone. It is carried with us in the most modern times. But above all, it reminds us of the fact that this unbelievable man who makes these kind of discoveries, that almost 500 years later, I can come and report to you amazing dimensions of faith, was a true saint. That means he was simulusus et peccator. He was saint and sinner and one of us, tracking with us and God give that we all dare to be wrong about the return of the Lord soon. Thank you. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. 
Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.